Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is the podcast where we discuss the fun problems of designing games and the fun problems of playing games and the fun problems of being friends with AJ, which whew, it is fun, but there are problems. <laughs> AJ, what are we talking about this week? This week, we're talking about structure versus content. Yes, we are. So structure versus content is a tool or a model to look at game design. We talked about models in our last one when we went through hook, craft, and spirit. I'm surprised we have no follow-up on that because that was a whole adventure. (laughs) (laughs) So this is another model that I particularly use to look at board game design. Like all models, it's not comprehensive. There's blurred lines. All this kind of stuff is a tool that you can use. And that's sort of the angle that I really want to focus on with this is that how is this structure versus content separation a useful tool for game designers? Now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think structure and content is something that we've talked about on previous episodes. Am I, am I remembering that correctly, AJ? Yes, we have. So we're going to do a proper deep dive into it because this is a real fascination of mine. And this is probably one of the earliest concepts I learned in game design. So it has permeated my work right from the beginning. AJ, do you want to give the elevator pitch for what is structure versus content? And then we'll dive into how it's useful and examples of it and where the lines blur and how to use the lines blurring in interesting ways and et cetera, et cetera. Sure. The basic idea is it separates where the rules of the game come from. The structure of the game are the rules that form the architecture around everything that happens in the game. It's the rules that you have to teach to people up front before you can start. And then the content is the rules that come forth from the components in the game or from other aspects. From modules, uh, yeah. Yeah. A simple example would be for a trick-taking game, the structure would be saying there's suits for the card. You lead with a suit and everyone has to follow that lead. An example of content would be there are numbers on the cards. What are the different numbers? And are there any special abilities on the cards? Stuff like that. And as mentioned, these lines aren't definitive. They can blur. But I find it really useful as a designer because I want to get the structure nailed down for a game before I start caring about content. So recently I've been playtesting a game a bunch called Agricultists which is uh, probably going to be an upcoming release from the company that we both work with, Sexy Dudes Incorporated. It's a great company name. (laughs) And and the basic pitch of agriculture is that you are farmers who are raising animals to sacrifice them to the elder gods to bring about the end of the world. And every turn you you have this little mancala rondelle and you pick up guys, you drop them around. And when you drop them, you do certain actions. On a very high level, that's the structure. There's more to it, obviously. But one of the things that you can do is activate these abilities And at this stage, I don't really care if the abilities are balanced because to me, the abilities are content and the content I can shift in and shift out and I can tweak that. But as a designer, I want to get the structure really working before I invest too much time and energy into content. So this is, this is an example of how I find it to be a really useful delineation between, you know, why even bother separating structure versus content when anything could be anything. It's because I want to get my structure down before I start investing time into balancing content. I think that is so valuable. You first pointed that out to me, I think, when I was playtesting Colossus with you, which you've mentioned a few times. What a heck of a playtest. <laughs> so many lessons learned from it. <laughs> and the big takeaway there was worrying too much about the content of the game. and you had to... Which is very common. And this, this oh, yeah. is, I think, why the dichotomy is so useful. Mm-hmm. And I need to peel back to the MVP, the minimum viable prototype, which we've talked about before, and really focus on the core mechanics of the game, the core structure of what's going on, and have just the simplest possible version of the content, because the content is much more likely to change and ebb and flow with the design as things go, 
I think the easiest way to point out why this matters in the order of things is if you change the structure, you have to change the content. If you change the content, that's not going to have ripple effects with the structure, generally speaking. Absolutely. And one of the worst things you can do is change the structure to fit in the content that you want. So in a sense, it's like the phrase wag the dog. Are you familiar with that phrase? No. So it's a really useful one. I think it's used in politics, which is you've got a dog who has a tail. The dog should wag the tail, right? <laughs> Something's gone wrong when the tail is wagging the dog. Hmm. I think and I'm going to use I'm going to use an opinionated statement here. That's right. Sexy Dudes Incorporated has opinions on game design. Who saw that coming? <laughs> One of the worst things you can do is alter your structure because of a specific piece of content that you feel needs to be in the game. Because I think that 99.999% of the time that is a bad idea. I played a game a while back, a published game. I won't, I won't go into what it is, but there was a marking on the board. And when you're teaching the game, like people would look at that and be like, "Why is that marking on the board?" It turned out that there was one card that might never come into the game whatsoever that in order to balance around this one card, there needed to be like a threshold before you could play this card. So they marked the game board for this one card that would only rarely come out. That is a clear example of wagging the dog where they've restructured the game in a sense because game board is structured. We'll go into why that is in a second for a piece of content. So let's give some examples of what is structure and what is content just so that we can make sure that the concept is crystal clear. My go-to example is Santorini which is an incredible two-player abstract in which you play Greek gods, question mark? <laughs> I can't believe it. Yep, you're playing as the Greek gods, I think encouraging the workers to build in your honor. I think that's That's the... right. And so in Santorini, every turn you move and then place a piece. You can move in any of the eight adjacent spaces and then you can place a piece in any of the eight adjacent spaces. You can move up one level. If you ever move to the third level, uh, so when you build, you either build on the base level, the first level, or the second level. That's my Australian, by the way. In Australia, <laughs> it goes ground floor, first floor, second floor. Over here, it's ground floor, second floor. This was very confusing for the first few years in this <laughs> continent. Every elevator, I was like, why does this elevator skip a floor? This is such an interesting decision. So in Santorini, when you build, you build on the base or you build on what's there before. And if you can ever move to the third floor of something, then you win the game immediately. That's essentially the entire structure of Santorini. That is almost every rule that you need to know. However, the thing that makes Santorini so special and made it stand out among abstracts is that it has player powers. It has dozens of player powers. Those are the content. The structure is the base game rules and the content is the variable stuff that you swap in and out. One of the ways to think about it is structure is what is in every single time you play. Content might be in or might not. That's an example with Santorini. AJ, do you have any? You know what's a great example, actually? Vitala Serta Games. Because those ones have a very light structure, but there's so much content in the game that a simple action of like, you pick up this thing. Well, that also causes 17 other things to happen based off what cards are out and what other players have done and everything. <laughs> Those sort of fans, I've only played one or two of his games once each, and I've only spoken with someone about this. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But from my understanding, that's how all of his games work. They have very simple structure. You basically just have a couple different options of actions you can take. But the actual effects of the actions are where all these different types of cards and tiles and other abilities come into play that dictate really complex, robust chains of events that happen as a result of the simple actions taken. To give an example on the opposite extreme, I would say Zulkin, which is, uh, I think I mentioned this every episode, it's been in my head lately. Um, Zulkin's this incredible worker placement game, which has uh, two dozen, three dozen worker placement spaces. And because those are all printed on the board, before you can start playing, before you can effectively like understand the game, you need to know what each of those do. As well as that, there will be a total of 10 to 15 tiles that come out during the game. 
that's the content because in any given game they may not come out but the worker placement spaces are in every single game and you need to understand all of them to effectively play and the games that are hard to give examples of are the games that are heavy in both because we can't explain the the rules to them because they're very heavy (laughs) that makes me think of things like kingdom death monster or gloomhaven like campaign games that have like two different sets of structures one for the campaign and one for when you're in combat or games like feudum that are just like systems on top of systems on top of systems but also have tons and tons of content all these different cards and all these different abilities and then expansions on top of it because it was too simple to begin with right (laughs) One of the goals with Jellybean Games, particularly as in the brand that does the family-friendly games that we run, is low structure, high content. So scuttle, on your turn, you draw a card or you play a card. If you ever have 21 points in front of you, you win the game. There's a little bit more to it than that uh, because that game was a little bit more complex than it needed to be where you can play cards in different ways. But generally speaking, that's the base structure. Dracula's Feast, you have the three actions that you can take and you have the goal and then everything else for both those games is on the cards. Meow is possibly the cleanest example of this. In Meow, you win if you obey every rule held by players and there's a turn structure and that's it. All the content is on the cards. Other good examples that we love to bring up, (laughs) Yogi. You literally say, draw a card, do what it says. Yeah. That's the structure. (laughs) Hopefully that's clear. And there's always blurred lines. And I'll go into my favorite example of this, which is Twilight Imperium. Twilight Imperium 3 Base Edition has these eight strategy cards that you draft. And in the Base Edition, those are in every game. So I count those as structure, because in order to play the game, you have to know how those work. One of the things that the expansions brought in was alternates. So suddenly that turned the structure of a game into content. And this is why I say it's a blurred lines, because before you can really start playing any game of Twilight Imperium, you need to learn what those strategy cards do. But I still think of them as content because they can switch out from game to game. In Robotopia, which is on Kickstarter, November 16th, coming very soon, at the start of the game, you lay out the four guild cards and you need to teach them as part of the teach. So for that game, they are structure, whereas the action cards that you're drawing, you might not see a particular action card, so there's no need to explain every action card. But those guild cards that come out at the start of the game, those are structure for that game, but content for the game as a whole. That's what I mean when I say it's a bit of a blurred line, but I still, generally speaking, consider those to be content because when you're designing the game, if we take a step back from playing to designing, the guilds are part of the stuff that you can switch out once you've got the structure locked down, whereas swapping out a guild card shouldn't change the structure of the game. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking is if you think about Twilight Imperium as the example that you just gave, those were structure because they needed to all interlink in a very specific way. I'm sure those are built early. Everything was balanced around those, yeah. Exactly. And then sure, once the entire game is done, you can make an expansion and try some new stuff, but that's because now you've got a good core and good content. Then you can go back and say, how can we tweak the core in a really subtle way? How can we make this fit with our vision a little bit better? Because they weren't like massively different. The trade card still gets you trade resources. Right. They needed to be within the same area of design but they were doing subtly different things. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, I suppose, the structure is there is always a trade card. That is part of the rules. You always have to have one of each type. You can't just shuffle all the strategy cards (laughs) and put them in a game. It would break. And so actually that's the same in agriculture. It's the game I was talking about. There's five farm gods. There's the cows, horses, sheep, 
goats and pigs and you always have one from each of these different gods in so I know as a designer, hey, the goat card is always going to do this. The horse card is always going to move your meeples around. The cow card is always going to care about farms, for example. And so even though I'm going to have different content, I'm still thinking about the structure of the game where there is a cow card, a sheep card, a goat card, and trying to think of like what those are. That's actually a really uh, pertinent example right now because that's where I'm in Agricultus. I have got the base game. I've got the, the general structure pretty much locked down what you do in a turn, how you win, how you get your victory points, etc. What I don't have right now is what flavor these five gods have. Yeah, that's interesting because I was thinking actually of a different example where it's not sort of a blurred line between structure versus content, but it's still like a guiding force that should be thought of in the same way, which is the thematic connection. Not just thematic connection, but like the connection between the content. The example I wanted to give was a Magic the Gathering design set. If uh, Mark Rosewar came to me and said, I need you to design a hundred magic cards that you could just as easily imagine any of them out in a magic set. I could do that trivially easily, no question at all. And many, many designers who play Magic the Gathering could do that trivially easily. That's not what's difficult. What's difficult is making a design that fits with A, the thematic nature of the set, and B, fitting with the mechanical cohesion of the set. There's a term for this, uh, gestalt. It's a German word and basically means seeing a bigger picture from the small things. The whole design of a magic set, all 260 cards for the expansion, should form a gestalt that brings everything together, where each card individually, if you saw it, you'd be like, that belongs in that set both thematically and mechanically, it fits like a hand in a glove. Do you think that there's room in your dichotomy for a thematic axis or for a content cohesion aspect of it? Or do you think that's something else? Well, that's interesting because that's sort of one thing I've been thinking about, particularly with structure and content. About a week ago, I played Anno 1800, the board game. Have, have you played or seen this? I've heard of it. I haven't played it, no. It's a new Martin Wallace game, uh, relatively new. It's in the last year or two. P- pandemic time. Who knows what new is anymore? <laughs> I loved it. I had a really good time. It's basically tech tree the game. Every turn you add something to your tech tree and then eventually, you know, someone wins and it has some really clever mechanisms on a bunch of different levels. I loved the structure of the game and the content I could go either way. For me, it was interesting because everything that you can do is laid out and it's always the same in every game. So you just place out a hundred different tiles (laughs) and the game is getting better and better tiles as the game goes on. And this is a game where the structure is absolute genius and the content is obviously like balanced and works, but you could swap that out with brand new content and I wouldn't even notice. Let's look at Catan. Let's go to a classic. So Catan is a very structured game where the content is really just the development cards. I don't think there's anything else in that game that is not structure. So when you're teaching the game, you have to teach how a turn works, how the goods work. There's always the same five goods in every turn and they're they're tied to the pieces on the board. Theoretically, I guess you could swap out tiles for other tiles, but that would be a completely cosmetic change. Whereas I think theoretically you could release a series of Catan expansions that just change out the development deck and make it a radically different game. Hmm. Yeah. And so this is sort of tying into what you're saying about thematic, where you could take Catan, those base mechanisms, that structure, and swap out the content to make it a completely take that game. It already has elements of take that with like the Monopoly card and all of that. You could make every card in that game a take that card and that game would have a very different feeling and you could retheme it accordingly. Or you could make it a game about weird engine building. You know what I mean? Like there's all these different directions you could go with those cards that would make it feel very different thematically. 
So to try to answer your question, I don't think that it ties into the dichotomy necessarily because like Anachrony, for example, is a time travel game where the the core structure is time travel-y. Mm. And so you couldn't necessarily switch out the content of that and make it feel less time travel-y. Like Yogi, for example, uh, you know, draw a card and do what it says. What the card says is going to radically change your experience <laughs> of the game, even thematically. If the card was run a marathon... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a very different game. So why is it useful, AJ, to think about structure versus content? We've mentioned that it can be good to like lock down the structure before you start worrying about content, which I really think, uh, especially new designers, should be thinking about. Why else is this a useful dichotomy? I think it helps to focus where you're having problems, because I think often it can blur where your issues are coming from. I've seen games that people brought multiple times to playtest, and at the time I didn't have the language to articulate this, but what they were doing was they kept swapping out content, playtest after playtest, trying to patch over a structure that wasn't working. A broken core system. Right. And they could have been doing that for the rest of their lives and not gone any further. But when you realize where the issue lies, you can say, oh, this content, I can switch out for something else. You know, I can give the same example myself with Colossus. <laughs> I had a structure that I was happy with. I playtested it. I had the MVP and I playtested that a bit. But then I got too focused on the content. And I did the same thing. I lost sight of the issues coming from the core, even though the core structure of the game was better. That was still something that needed to be revamped. And I focused too much on the other details. So I think one of the big takeaways is being able to assess the state of the game that you're playing, whether it's you playtest in someone else's game or you playtest in your own game and seeing what changes you actually need to make. I have observed this in my own design and also uh, other designers who I, I've been working with who are quite experienced. You'll often see people saying, don't don't worry about what the cards say. You and I played my prototype Voyage the other day. And I think I flagged, maybe not up front, but definitely during the note process, like I don't care about the cards. Like the cards are just there because you need to have cards for the game to play. I care about what your core loop looks like, what your actions look like, what you're doing on a, on a turn to turn basis, because that's the part that I want to get that right. I don't care about the rest. Um, Jeff Fraser, who's been on the show and we mentioned a lot, he brought out a game the other day and was sort of like, yep, and then you can get these power-ups. They're probably too weak. I don't <laughs> care right now because, again, he's just focusing on the structure. Mm -hmm. And that's a key thing is you do need content in the game yeah. to play test, <laughs> but you don't need to panic about it. And especially if you know that the content isn't super well tested, it might be a bit weak, might be a bit overpowered, might just not be that fun. Just flag that up front, say, listen, I know this is the case. I'm not worried about it. And then it saves people getting frustrated during the game when they run up against that. Yeah. And it also focuses their feedback more. Yeah, I've been in games where I've been like, oh, cool. Just double the strength of that card because <laughs> genuinely I don't care. I'm, it's sort of like we were saying earlier. I want to get the structure down pat. Then I'm going to shift to the content and make sure that I've made the best content to support that structure. Now, what's interesting is sometimes you'll make content that infringes on the structure of the game. So there was a, a game that I brought to the first time we ever met. You didn't play this, though. A lane-based card combat system. I hadn't played Soulforge. Like Soulforge. I, I was about to say, <laughs> I hadn't played Soulforge at the time. Having now played someone else's similar version to Soulforge, I realized how similar it was. And if I had played Soulforge, my game probably would have been much better. <laughs> it's all about committing units to lanes and fighting in the lane. And I had this ability that let units shift lanes really easily. It was called mount. So you play a mount and then you know you have someone riding your mount and they can move and attack. And that broke the structure of the game 
through the content because the core structure of the game was very tight and focused on the importance of having your person in a lane and moving mattering. Oh, interesting. And this one rule that I had, this one mechanic for some of the cards completely undermined the structure of the game. Interesting. Yeah. And Robotopia coming to Kickstarter November 16th uh, <laughs> is an interesting example of that because the thing that a lot of people connect to in that game is this master robot leaping around and crushing robots into cubes. I'm in the middle of writing these designer diaries. They have gotten long and hopefully interesting. So that those will be up soon. But um, And I think we'll do a design diary episode of Robotopia as well. So I might talk about it then also. But one thing that our developer, John Brieger, I kept on putting content in that messed with that core thing. And he had to be like, stop trying to detract from the fun. But I was like, but it's this design space that we have to use. He's like, yeah, but... All the content needs to lean into the core. He didn't use the content structure dichotomy, but <laughs> what he was essentially saying was the content needs to support the core, not detract from it, which I think is exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'd like to say too on that is game designers love to be clever, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> <laughs> you get, get, get the uh, adrenaline from it, yeah. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think what a lot of designers, myself included, I am not exonerating myself from this, is... You'll think of something where it's like, ooh, here's a really weird twist I can do. Here's something I can do with this mechanic that's really crunchy or really weird or uses some weird brain space, you know? And what that can lead to is your game being really perverse or unintuitive. A good example would be whenever you have a tension in the game as opposed to a coherence. So a coherence in a game is when a player wants to do something they do it and the game says, good job, high five, you did it. Stonemaier games are fantastic for this. Yeah. Stonemaier games are like rewards on top of rewards on top of rewards. Oh, you built this. Well, have a victory point and a cookie. And you know what? Now your engine's better. <laughs> <laughs> for me, the best example of that is in Scythe. Yeah. The, the upgrade space reduces the cost of one part of your board increases the benefit of another part of your board and if you do it enough time gets you one fifth of the way towards victory it's just everything all at once it's one of the most satisfying actions you can take in any game ever <laughs> absolutely and easily the best part of scythe it's a phenomenal mechanic i know we've mentioned it before but i have to mention it here cartouche also does the same thing really really well where you take an action and it rewards you on top of rewards you for all this good positive feedback stuff so the opposite of that is giving someone a tension point so an example of this done well would be High Society, where it's an auction game. It's very simple, and you're trying to get the most points from winning auctions. But at the end of the game, whoever has the least money is too poor to hang out in your snobbish High Society. They automatically are disqualified. <laughs> and so you have to get the most points without having the least money. That's a tension point. You want to spend the money to get the things, but the game actively punishes you for spending too much. And that's a game that balances it very well. But there are many games that have tension points where it feels uncomfortable to do the strategically correct move. Oh, I have a great example of that. Sure, yes. It is extremely difficult to get it work in a game where you spend victory points during the game. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. Terra Mystica does a really good job. I'm sure you can think of a bunch of others. But generally speaking, once farmers got victory points, which are generally your win condition, spending them to take an action... A, it's incredibly difficult to pass because you're like, okay, spending four victory points now to get this, to get this, this is going to eventually pay off more than four victory points. But it's also uncomfortable because you're like, but I, I'm trying to get victory. I don't want to spend victory points. That's what I'm trying to get. So I, I think that's a, a key example of that tension, which, hey, if you can write it, props to you. But it's 
not easy to do. It's incredibly difficult to get that to find that balance point. What do you think about games that use money as the win condition and money are also what you use to do all the normal things in the game? They tend to be heavier, is what I would say. Yeah. Um, Food Chain Magnate being the obvious example, or any 18xx game, like those games are known for being brain burning, complex, heavy games. Whereas I don't think you see it much in lighter games. And even when it's not super brain burning, it usually pushes its audience into being a more hardcore audience where they can think those things through. It's often like a lot meaner, or if it's not meaner between the players, then it's a much tougher game. It's a much tighter game where you can get very punished by playing it improperly. Like, oh, you spent a bunch of money on the last turn of the game instead of just hoarding it for victory points? You're screwed. (laughs) I I will give you an exception, which is games where at the end of the game, you sort of turn everything into money. Sure, yeah. Because generally speaking, then the money is is not treated as like the main victory point. Spending $3 here is not going to matter because in the end game, this card or this ability or this whatever is going to get you $40. Then at that point, you're thinking of it at a different scale. So in that case, I think it can work and it can be an interesting little thing of like, don't spend too much, but it's not as tight as like, oh God, I'm only going to end with 30 victory points. So I want to spend two now. And typically what those types of games will do is they won't give you a favorable rate. It'll be like, oh, you've got $10 left over? They'll translate into one of your 50 victory points. You know, it's Oh, like... I was actually thinking of Scythe, where technically the victory points in Scythe are coins, but throughout the game, oh, yeah. you're constantly going to be spending coins. But every star at the end is going to turn into like 12 points. So if you have 10, if you have five stars, that's 60 points right there. So you don't really care about the $2 that you spent earlier. Right, that's a good point. That's a good point. Having said that, Scythe is not, not an incredibly light game, but I think I think it's an example of an accessible version of that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about replayability, because for me, one of the most obvious ways to make your game replayable is by adding more content. I'm sure you could name a dozen games that have, <laughs> you know, expansions are literally just more stuff. Cosmic Encounter, I think, is going to be the my go-to example. Every expansion of Cosmic Encounter is just like, cool, here's more aliens. Because in Cosmic Encounter, the negotiation is essentially the structure, and then the content is the different alien abilities, which can radically change the game. I'm a big believer in making games replayable, and for a long time, the only way I knew how to make games replayable was with content. A lot of expansions are just content expansions, but there are also obviously expansions that have structure. And typically, like we mentioned in the past, a structure expansion is something that was cut from the original design because it was too heavy for people to internalize easily, but it is the intended experience of the game. And so when they had to cut it, it just became the expansion for the game. The opposite though, is when a game just does well and the publisher just wants to make more money. So they just make another expansion for it and add on an extra layer. And I think that often happens when either there isn't much room for content for whatever reason, or they've already got a bunch of expansions that generate content for it. Yeah. The one thing I'll say with those is you really want to be aware of the weight of the game that you have if you're going to expand it with structure. Yes. I was talking to someone about Everdell the other day, which we obviously liked, we, we mentioned in the podcast. But one of the things that we liked about it was how smooth it was, how easy and simple it was. Yeah. And they were saying that they played some of the expansions and it's like, here's this extra board with this resource that only works on this board and these like workers that only work on this extra board. It's like, yeah. why are we adding all this extra stuff to our <laughs> light fun <laughs> worker placement? Yeah. So the about Jelly Bean Games, we have a few lines like the Treasure Hunters line, the Masquerade line. And each of those followed the same expansion pattern, which is each expansion was a bunch of content and one structural change. 
So Ninjutsu added the secret, uh, the, the traps mechanic, where you can play cards face down. Night of the Mummy added the hiding your face mechanic. These are both structural changes that allowed for a bunch more content, and then they can pretty easily integrate. So there might be cards in Night of the Mummy that you can shuffle into Dracula's Feast without needing to introduce the hiding mechanic. I don't, I don't know if there is, but in both those cases, actually, the base game... Oh, Village Pillage does the exact same thing. Village Pillage has two expansions, each of which add one keyword <laughs> they add in the freebooters i think they're called i've played my own expansion for a long time <laughs> or they add in provoke which are both just a single new keyword to the game that allowed for a bunch more content this is something as a designer i'm always thinking about before i move on from my structure into content i'm always going okay is there enough nuance in this structure to allow for as much content as i want now if, if you're doing a very low content game like something like zolkin then it's not really a concern because as long as you have, you know, five things and you can draw enough content for that and that's all you need. Something like Village Pillage, we can't expand that game because we completely, completely explored all the design space within that structure with the first game. So Village Pillage, very simple structure, and then there's a big deck of cards that you draw from. That content, we don't know how to add any more content to that deck because every permutation that you can add, we've added. That's why each expansion added a new keyword, because in order to have any more content whatsoever, we needed more structure. We needed a different structure. So when I'm designing a game, I'm imagining heavy euros here or midweight euros. When I'm designing a euro and I know I want a deck of 30 cards, for example, I need to look at my structure and be like, okay, is there enough in this structure to generate 30 cards? If I'm struggling to come up with cards, is it worth going back and adding more structure? I'm really fascinated when you say there was no more room, every permutation was done. And that's because all of the uh, content in original Village Pillage was stats-based. There was basically just stats and the different zones for the resources. You could harvest resources, you could steal resources, you could bank resources, and you could spend resources to get victory point tokens. That's what you're talking about, right? There's no permutations of that. Yeah, and actually I'll, I'll go back to something you said earlier because when I was like, I can come up with infinite content. And my design partner for that, Tom Lang, the co-designer, he, and I'm so glad he did this, almost all of my infinite content I came up with went against the core of the game. That game structure is really focused. It has a core loop that knows exactly what it's about. And all of my content that I was like, I can come up with more cards, was just going against it in a way that made the game unfun. Like that game is basically scissor, paper, rock, where farms beat walls, walls beats raiders, raiders beats farms. And a lot of my content was like, ah, it's a farm that's good against raiders. And I would have gotten there by myself by playing it, but Lang was able to be like, hey, that breaks the game because now if you have a raider and you get someone who has that card, there's nothing good you can play. They can beat you with a wall, they can beat you with a farmer. There's no way of outsmarting that player anymore. It goes against the core loop. Or other stuff like that where it was like, yeah, look, it functions, but it doesn't lean into the core loop. Like your content should always be emphasizing what's fun about your structure. That's the point of content as well as replayability. So don't ever sacrifice one for the other. I was always like, I can make it more replayable. I'll just add this in. Yes, cool. But in doing so, I've, I've sacrificed what makes the game fun. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> now, I do think that there's a time when changing structure for content could be right. But I think that has to be like, I know in my mind's eye what I want the final feel of the game to be, or I know what I want players to be doing. And the content that I have here, like maybe this isn't the exact final version of the content, but I know what types of gameplay patterns I want to see happen here. 
And the play patterns aren't happening because of something that the structure is doing to bottleneck players. As a really simple example, let's say that you have one action a turn, but you're like, well, it's a combat game. So I move into position. I want to be able to follow up with an attack. So the structure of the game isn't allowing the content to breathe. So then you go to the structure and you say, okay, instead of one action, you get two actions. And all of a sudden that makes the content that you have already work. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I can use another Village Pillage example, actually. Do it. (laughs) One of the latest additions to that game was the banking mechanism. And that was specifically added because we couldn't generate enough content without it. We had content for farmers, we had content for merchants, we had content for raiders, but the wall was just not interesting enough. Like we couldn't come up because the wall just stops people from stealing your stuff. And if no one's attacking you, the wall had nothing to do. So we actually added the bank mechanism in. Now, obviously that works, but that was an example of quote unquote, locking down the structure, moving over to content, developing, 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 then being like, okay, there's not enough structure to generate enough content. So we went back, added something that works really intuitively in the game. That's what you should be aiming for. Something that makes the game better. I'm saying so many (laughs) obvious things tonight, but you know what I mean? It should emphasize the systems you already have in play, but that also allowed us more content. Agricultus, the game I mentioned earlier, and I don't want to press this as like, you should always lock down your structure 100% and then move on to content because as with anything, it's a back and forth process. Um, I recently learned how Pixar write their films, which is that they have the script people write the script, turn it into like storyboard animation. So it's just like a single scroll thing. It's not actually animated. Watch that, go back to script, go back to animation, go back to script, back to animation. So I'm not saying write your script and animate exactly what you've written. I think Pixar films are so good because they're constantly like oscillating between the, the two back and forth. But I think there is value as a designer in being conscious that you're doing that. Right now, like I said, I've, I've essentially locked down the structure for agricultus, and now I'm going to write the content. And during the content writing process, I might be like, ah, okay, cool. Like I can't emphasize, I can't use this content to emphasize the structure because I don't have enough nuance in the structure. I don't have enough direction in the structure. So I might go back, add a thing, come back to content, back and forth, back and forth. I'm wondering if there's ever the opposite issue where you have structure that allows for tons of content, but you just don't need that much design space. And so you can streamline that structure. Yeah, I I think that's sort of what we were talking about with a lot of expansions are that. Yeah, yeah. I know I'm particularly guilty of this. Night of the Mummy and Dracula's Feast were one game originally. And then I was just like, I really like the hide mechanism because it allowed me to make so many more characters. But then I was like, I don't want to release a game that has 20 characters in the box. I want like an ex- a more accessible number. And so I was like, oh, if I cut this one mechanism that halves the number of characters and if the game goes well, which it did, I can just release that as its own expansion. So that's definitely something that as a designer, if you can look at it and be like, okay, cool. Like I like all these systems for thematic reasons, or I like all these systems because they give me you know, more ability to make content. But do I actually need all this for the game to be fun? Can I cut? Now, Depending on the game experience you're making, maybe that's a bad idea. But I I would say in the majority of cases, (laughs) if you can cut a thing and keep the game fun, then absolutely do that. And don't, I I know that I tend to be an anxious person of like, but what if I don't have enough? What if I don't have enough things to build enough content? Try it. See if you do without that mechanism. Uh, Actually, I'll I'll go back to Agricultus. You never played the early versions of Agricultus where there was a whole map and you'd move around the map and you do all this stuff on the map. That was largely because in Agricultus, you uh, pick up workers and the number that you pick up gives you an action, either one, two, three, four, or five. And I was like, without the map, I don't know what these actions are. So it's not exactly the same, but it's sort of a parallel situation. 
I was like, I need this map so that there's stuff for these five actions to do. But the more I worked on it and the more I developed it, the more people were like, I like this game. What's with this stupid map? I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. There is actually room enough in this core system that I don't need a whole map. I did that exact same thing with Scallywags. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mentioned on the podcast, I have a game that's like a scroll and you unscroll it. I think we did what was fun about it, pitching. That was the one that we did. That yeah. For. Okay. That's how it came up. So you put some traps and some treasures down and the other person unravels it and is trying to get as many treasures as they can without busting. And so with that game, I had the core system. I had the MVP down as simple as it could be. It was just like, every time you unscroll, you get a point. And their person could put down a couple of X's. If you reveal too many X's, you bust. That was all the game was. And it was fun. It was already working. Like, it wasn't great. No one would publish it. But, like... <laughs> the core loop was there. The core loop was there. Um, and so I could see that that part was fun. And I was like, okay, what do I do with this system? And so then I tried to turn it into a roll and write with, like, another system on top of it. And I toyed around with that for a while. I realized it was just too much and that the core loop of the game was so strong, I barely needed anything else. So I went back to it and I cut all the extra stuff that I added and just used that basic structure, tuned it and tuned it really, really nicely, just focusing all the mechanics on just that one thing. And it's working great. I'm, I'm very happy with where it's at. <laughs> Chris Zinsley from Cardboard Edison has this similar sort of model that I really like, which is that every game has two things what you're trying to accomplish and how you do it, which I also find a very useful dichotomy. Maybe we'll do a whole episode of that because I could talk about that for an hour as well. And so for Robotopia, I was always like, okay, cool, I've got this cool worker placement system, but what do you do with it? Oh, I'll add this whole other game. And it turns out that the worker placement system by itself was interesting and compelling enough that you didn't need a complicated thing to do. You needed that to be as bare bones as possible so that you could <laughs> focus on the fun part of the game. Similarly in Robotopia, I was always, for some reason, this is an anxiety of mine, content. I was like, but how am I going to get enough content out of this? And so when I trimmed it down, I actually, at some point, found myself not having enough content. And then uh, that's where the master robot came in. So the master robot came in as a thing to interact with because I needed something else for the players to like, I needed another, another knob to dial or another dimension to the game. And that came in, and for some reason, people really connected it. So that's why I've emphasized that more and more and more as the game's been uh, in, in playtesting and development. Until now, it's sort of like the the main one of the main selling points of the game. And so that was an example of adding structure in to get more content, but people really liking that structure. So again, this is going to sound obvious. Make sure that if you're adding structure into the game, make sure that people really like it. Like with the bank in Village Pillage, uh, make sure it's it's a core part of the game. Agricultus, which uh, I'm heavily working on, which is why it's coming up so much, I, again, sort of didn't have quite enough for people to do it. It needed just like one more dimension. And so I added these tracks for the five gods. And I figured, you know, that, that, that works thematically because you're worshipping these gods and people wanted something. People wanted to bring about the apocalypse by hitting the top of, of a particular god track or something like that. But in the version you played, AJ, recently... I had gone too far on it. Instead of just adding like the bare minimum tracks, I was like, there's these tracks and these tracks have a mini game and the mini game does this and that. <laughs> and your notes afterwards were like, what? why? <laughs> <laughs> why are we spending so much time over here on the not fun part? So in the version since then that you haven't played and I really want to get your eyes on, the tracks are now just tracks. And the way that you interact with the tracks is not by playing this weird track game. It's by the core thing that people already like. It ties into the pre-existing systems. 
it's it's a, a new candy element where you can add stuff to your board and it just gives you access to the tracks. The tracks are incredibly useful because I can use them to generate more content, but I'm not making them the focus, which was I was guilty of almost every time I would add something to that game, I'd be like, it's a new toy, let's make this the game. And people were like, no, Peter, you've got a game. You've got a fun game. If you're just trying to add more stuff, so this is my advice to designers, if you're just trying to add more stuff, make sure that that is the minimum it needs to be to let you let you do things. I mean, A, try not to add more stuff, but sometimes you really do need to. Sometimes the structure mm-hmm. needs to be a little bit added to just to be able to generate content for that replayability because as a gamer, replayability is a very, very high priority for me. And so sometimes you need more structure in order to add more content to add more replayability. But make sure when you do, you single digit edition, not like, okay, now here's a whole second game. Totally. Going back to Colossus again, there was originally a card hand management system. When I was trying to build the first version of that, I was like, okay, what's the simplest thing I can do? And it was just playing cards, right? Because I was trying to go for that simple structure. I wasn't using that vocabulary, but that's what I was trying to do. And so it was like, okay, I'll keep the content on the cards. This card says you do this thing. And then it makes the game lighter because you just play the card do card says, right? But the issue was, it wasn't just that. The, the structure was also <laughs> too cumbersome. But you rightly pointed out that you didn't care about the card play, that I had this mechanism in there, but it didn't, it, but that core mechanism didn't exist to serve a greater purpose of the game. It was just the thing that I had chosen for the way to accomplish things, which sounds really vague, but it's like, well, last time we to, were talking a lot about alignment and I think, I think that's a useful yes. term to use here. Yeah. So the, the cards meant that uh, your eyes weren't on the table. And this is something I want to talk about someday is just like, where is the game yeah where like where should players be looking where should players be interacting with and where are they actually looking where are they actually interacting with what what are you forcing them to interact with (laughs) exactly and so this case players would have their hand of cards they'd be reading them they'd be thinking about which cards to play and i had this mechanism which i quite liked for like how to play them and how to retrieve them but it's not a card game it's a board game with miniatures and a giant colossus on the table yeah that's the selling point exactly what i did is cut the cards take that content and make it structure so instead of your movement is tied to the cards the movement is tied to the board where do you want to move on the board that's what costs you movement that's that's how you do that and where are you attacking on the board it's all about the things that are already on the table so one you don't have your hands full of things in your head down everyone's leaning over looking at the board where i want them to be and b their focus isn't on all this content it's on the game board itself doing all the heavy lifting or most of the heavy lifting yeah agricultus exact same issue the the god tracks that i was talking about i think you need thematically and mechanically for content reasons i believe in the version you played it was about like everyone's putting multiple stuff on each track and so you're constantly tallying it up and that's just not where people's eyes want to be they want to be on their board doing their thing i I think when you played it you actually drew on the tabletop simulator being like (laughs) why are my eyes over here so often i want them to be here (laughs) because that's exactly what it is one thing i want to talk about is the weight mentally of the structure because this is something i don't think enough people think about is it's not just the teach because we talked a lot about it's nice to have an easy teach where you tell someone a basic structure and then they discover the game through the content but part of it is just keeping everything in your brain is very mentally exhausting if you've got a ton of structure that people have to keep in mind then they have to do the work of the computer in a video game right and it's just a lot for them to do in order to get out the strategic horizons that they want and 
when it's not heavy, but it's hard to wrap your head around, again, it just takes so much of their focus away from the game because their brain has to run the program of the game. We always give these examples, but, you know, Hanabi, where my cards are facing the opposite way, and uh, I have to keep track of, like, the position of them and stuff like that. Or any game that requires you to do something weird and abnormal, it takes a disproportionate amount of effort, even if the structure is simple. And while I absolutely love one of our games, French Toast, I have found that it does take a little bit for people to be able to wrap their head around. If I'm teaching it in person... It goes very smoothly. We just start playing. Yeah. The easiest way to teach that game is to play that game. I actually ran that about five hours ago with a group of non-gamers. And like a fool, I tried to explain it instead of just playing. I tried to teach <laughs> the rules and they're all like, we don't understand what's happening. I was like, oh, what, what am I doing? Like, this is my own game. I should know how to teach this. So we just started playing. <laughs> Everyone immediately got it just straight away. So because you've dealt with this a lot, do you have any tips for designers for when their game might be a little hard to parse from reading it as opposed to playing it for the structure specifically? So I'm going to give an annoyingly long answer to that that you can cut out if you need to because it's not super relevant to the topic of this episode. I recently read a series of three, well, it's going to be a series of three, only the first two are out so far, of marketing books specifically about how to market romance novels. So it's called Romance Your Brand, Romance Your Plan, and I can't remember what the third one's called because it's not out yet. That just blew my mind. I absolutely love these. And I think because they're about a thing that I don't make, I don't write romance, I've never written romance, I have no interest in selling romance. Because it was so disconnected from my own industry, I was able to perfectly map it over to board games in a way that was really useful. And we could seriously do a whole episode on this, but I'll, I'll mention the most relevant part, which is that she talks a lot about working out what channel people are finding your game through. She doesn't say game. <laughs> she obviously <laughs> says a romance novel. And so she's talking about how nowadays in the modern day, series of romance novels are the hotness. Like that's what you want to be writing as an author because how do most people find their romance novels these days? Through Amazon. When you buy a book on Amazon, there is a button that says, see every every book in the series and you can just buy the entire series with a single click. Whereas back in the day when people were going to a bookstore, if they picked up book three in a series, cool, they might never see book one or two in their life. And so they're just going to be like, well, I'm not going to buy book three. Whereas nowadays, if book three is a hit, because they're often standalone while being in a series, people will just buy the ones before and after. So the thing that you want to think about is how are people going to be finding your game? French Toast, which I adore, it's possibly my favorite Jelly Bean game, I really, really love it, was a terrible Kickstarter game. And you can see that in the numbers. <laughs> that game did not do well on Kickstarter. So we are putting a lot of time and effort into the retail release because we think this game is so good. But if we thought about it and said, okay, this game is going to go on Kickstarter, it's not a good match for Kickstarter because on Kickstarter, you can't just show someone the game. French Toast is a perfect convention game. It's a perfect warm sale game where someone is there in person interested in the game. It's a terrible cold pitch because like you said, it's difficult to explain without playing it. Once you're playing it, it's fine. So um, Sarah, who's the VP of marketing at Jellybean is really pushing streaming, is really pushing TikTok, is really pushing like video plays of that for our retail release because that game is so good and so fun, but you need to see it or play it to understand it. So my question would be, to, to, to answer your thing of, of how do you deal with that, you think about how people are going to be accessing this game. If it's a heavy Euro, you can't really show people the game by teaching it because a heavy Euro requires a, a two-hour, three-hour commitment. 
um french toast is a party game so it's sort of okay that it's unintuitive because we know that when we're at conventions we can just get people playing it they'll be like oh i get it and and you know be more likely to convert into into customers uh kickstarter was a really bad format but if i was to kickstart it again i would sink all of our marketing budget not into facebook ads not into um written reviews into streaming and into video reviews because as soon as you see it played you get it so i would think about yeah what what your channel is for the game if you're going to be pitching publishers long distance that's going to be a trouble because you're going to have to send them the rules and have them be like i don't know how this works if you know that you're going to be playing with publishers in person great that's not going to be as much of an issue does that answer the question it's like i said it's a very long answer to a, a good question yeah so i don't know that it helps designers design in a way to make it easier for their players to parse but you definitely hit the nail on the head when it comes to pitching to publishers what i'm saying is you need to design to channels and this is what we're doing as a company is that we are now designing to what our channels are if our channel is facebook ads we're designing a game that looks good in facebook ads now this sounds very corporate and very mercenary but we, we do want to make money i want to keep aj employed and i want to say in america um, Thank you. <laughs> so we are, I want to say in America, are away from AJ and then give him something to do so <laughs> bother me. <laughs> uh, so what we are doing is we are saying, okay, what's our channel? Let's design a game to that channel. And then making that game as good as it can be. You played Voyage the other day. And mm-hmm. Voyage is a game that we started from the artwork. We found artwork that we liked and now we're designing a game around that. Now, you can be honest, I won't, I won't hurt my feelings. Does that mean that the game you played was bad and heartless and corporate? Not at all. No. I'm very proud of that design, despite the fact that I came at it from a business first point of view, um, from a from a product point first point of view. That doesn't mean that the game is soulless. It's it's not, you know, studio executives sitting in a room being like, ah, the kids love TikTok. Let's release a TikTok board game. It's that I want to make money as a game designer. And if that's not your goal, then this is probably not as relevant to you. <laughs> I want to make money as a game designer. So I'm being like, okay, what's a game that can sell? Now let's make that game really good and really beautiful and really fun. And obviously it's not there yet, but I'm on a, I'm on a good path for this to be a game that I'm incredibly proud of, as proud as Robotopia, which started from mechanics. This is a game starting from product, and I'm going to be just as proud of it by the end of it. On a related note, watch it, everyone. Voyage is going to be huge. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're really excited for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a similar one to French Toast that I thought of, because remember everyone, I've got a retail background, is Illusion. Illusion is an amazing game to demo to people, and it's a terrible pitch. Do you know this one? I've not, I don't think I've even heard of it. Oh, yes, yes. This is by the same people who made The Mind, like the same studio, right? Yeah, yeah. Or at least same publisher. Yeah. It's released by Pandasaurus in the US, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah. So for Illusion, basically there's like these different weird symbols or letters or shapes or something, and they'll all have the same colors on it. Red, blue, green, yellow. And what you're trying to do is draw another card. So they're completely different, every single one of them. You've got a, a bunch of letters on one. You draw one. And now this one is a bunch of hearts. And what you're trying to do is put them in order for which one has more of a particular color. So maybe for this round, we look at blue. Do you think there's more blue on these letters than on these hearts? Well, the the letters are hollow and kind of skinny, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> and you're just trying to sort of eyeball it. And that doesn't sound super appealing, like saying, right. oh, you're going to guess how much color's on the card. <laughs> I promise you, I throw this down in front of you, you'll be shocked at how much fun you have with this. And so whenever anyone asks me about this game, I didn't say, oh, you try and guess how much color's on the card. I'd say, hold on. I'd grab my demo copy and say, yeah. let's start around. It, it's compelling to do, not to explain. 
Um, to jump back to French toast very briefly, again, if I went back in time and, and had to do another Kickstarter French toast, I would probably look very closely at how Wavelength structured their Kickstarter because that is definitely a more visual game. So that's um, that's a point in its favor. Like French Toast is a, is a verbal game. It's not visual barely at all. Uh, Wavelength is more visual, but I think I played Wavelength today as well, which is why it's on my mind. I think that suffers a similar thing that it's a little tricky to explain. Like it's, it's quite fun once you get started, but I think the explanation for that is a little counterintuitive. That game did gangbusters on Kickstarter. Uh, it's an incredible game. French Toast and Wavelength have been described as sort of like the opposite of each other, hopefully not in success, but in terms of like one is about trying to get multiple people to find the same area. And if, if you play them both, you'll understand what I mean. If I was to redo the French Toast Kickstarter, I'd see how they did it because I think they did a really good job of conveying this difficult to convey game, again, with the caveat that there's more visual. They use a counterintuitive channel to great success. I think one thing that we definitely should have done is have someone playing the game we have a series of gifs or maybe it was just still images on the kickstarter but it explains how the game goes it shows around it would have i think been way more effective to in the video just show people playing the game because it's the type of thing if you watch 15 seconds of people playing this game yeah it is so like, like i said it takes like two minutes to explain but if you start playing it within literally like he's not exaggerating 15 seconds you'll understand the entire game <laughs> mm-hmm Hey, let's talk about the balance between content and structure because obviously there's there's no correct answer but i feel like games are generally more well received if they are low structure high content and that's a that's a, that's a statement i'm going to throw out there i have no evidence for this but i just want to get your take on that as a thought i disagree i will say i have a strong personal preference that is in alignment with that statement i do not think that holds up to scrutiny i think if you look at hardcore gamers a lot of what they like is fairly hefty in both. I'm thinking, you know, um, Gloomhaven. Feast for Odin has literally like the most structure and the most content I've ever played. <laughs> Feast for Odin comes with a deck of about 100 occupation cards labeled A. And then once you play the game enough, you open the B deck, which is another 100 occupation. In an average game, you will play maybe four to five occupation cards. <laughs> and then once you finish with B, you open the C occupation cards. That game has 300 occupation cards that like oh it's it's a beautiful game i love feast for i played that the other day as well i've been playing all my favorite games lately it's been a good time to be peter (laughs) and then feast for odin also is famous for being the worker placement game with 70 worker placement spaces (laughs) (laughs) and i mean there's definitely light structure games that do well but i think a lot of the ones that i can think of that do well with light structure also broadly speaking have pretty light content in the same vein as village pillage where would you throw terraforming mars because that's always my go-to example that one I would say is not light structure. I would say it's probably moderate structure with uh, with heavy content. That game is is heavy content. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Considering the different, like how much the combinations matter. Yeah, it is the combinations of it that matter a lot. Yeah, maybe that's worth flagging. When we're talking content, there's content like in in Robotopia, you get four guilds out. And yes, you can combo those guilds, but there's always four, so they're not going to combo in that many ways. Not to diss Robotopia, which is a game that I love. Whereas something like Terraforming Mars, you're going to play like 10 tech cards by the end, maybe? Uh, more than that, I think. Ten, it's, let's, it's let's, been, let's say it's... 10 to 20 cards in, in Terraforming sure. Mars. And sure. they're not siloed. The combination of them matters hugely. So yeah. if there's 100 cards in that game, and there's more than 100 cards, but if there's 100 cards in that game and you're playing 10 and the combination of 10 matters, that's, you know... 10 factorial different combinations that you potentially have within that deck it's 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 immense 
Yeah, and Res Arcana is essentially a simpler version of Terraforming Mars. Like, I, I don't want to belittle anyone in here. I actually prefer Res, but... Yeah, me too. Res, to me, it takes all the things I like about Terraforming Mars, the drafting and the card play action, and strips it down to its barest possible form. You will draft and play 10 cards in total in the game, and the amount of depth out of that is huge. Would you consider that to be high on content? Because there are a lot of cards in that box, and there are a lot of combinations of them, and each of the cards do multiple things. So to me, that would be a very content-heavy game, even if you're only using 10 cards in the game. Oh, I, w- I would say Res Arcana is, is almost pure content. Like, that game is like, hey, look, we... Look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We have to have structure because otherwise the game doesn't work. <laughs> but we're going to make this structure as simple as we can possibly make it so that you can get to the content. That That's a game where the content is entirely the focus. And uh, Race for the Galaxy is almost exactly the same. Whereas something like Puerto Rico, which Race for the Galaxy springs from, I would say is relatively structure heavy content light. Yeah, I think that tracks. Can you think of any games? And this is, this is now just me asking you. This is now just a game. Can you think of any games that are purely structure? purely structure um go i haven't played go um, uh, yeah go chess I, th- I think this is the context in which content structure came up in the past i would say this is what sort of made sandarini stand out in that it's it's an mm. abstract with with content whereas abstracts are generally entirely structured but o- outside of abstracts can you think of any any modern games or any games that you like that have not got content i struggle to think if that's even possible outside of an abstract i guess the lightest I could possibly think of, I think, would be No Thanks, but it still has content. It has the different numbers of the cards, and the combination of cards that come out hugely matters on your gameplay. I guess let's talk about that for a moment. I Technically, you're right. Like Numbers 1 through 10 in a deck are content. I don't consider them content. I, I see that as okay. like, during the explanation, if you have to say, hey, like we're working in a game called Fast Food Fight at the moment, and during the explanation, you say, yep, there's numbers 1 through 5 twice and the number 10. That's part of the rules explanation. That, for me, is is essentially structure. Gotcha. But no, you're right. I, th- I think no thanks. Uh, can't stop would be another example. I mean, you could argue that's an abstract, I suppose. But the p- push your luck games, I guess, generally speaking, don't need content to be fun. Like, like Quacks is a push your luck game with a bunch of content, like two massive uh, uh, wings of content. Push your luck games sort sort of have such a such a fun core loop that they don't need anything outside the structure. Like. Um, uh, Diamet or uh, Ink and Gold, whichever you know it as. Yeah, the only thing with that is like the number of gems on the card. Oh yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And like the fact that there are different types of traps. I have, I have one more thing I want to talk about and then I'll throw to you in case you have any other thoughts, which is keywords. Keywords for me exist in this weird space between content and structure. Technically, you could say they're structure. One way I like to differentiate it is structure is what's in the rule book and content is what's in the cards ignoring the part of the rulebook that just goes through every card. <laughs> but keywords, while technically, yes, they're structure, I think of them as content. And I'm going to explain why. Unless it's like built into the game and you know you're going to see one. Village Pillage has the exhaust keyword. The base game has this keyword exhaust that I'm very proud of the design of a Village Pillage. I think from a purely academic point of view, it's a very well-structured game. Like, and I, I, I use the word academic because there's a, a class in St. Louis that uses Village Pillage as their game to teach game design. Um, like they, they pull this out because again it's my game i realized that but it, it does a lot of things very elegantly and i'm very proud of it the one kind of fly in the ointment for me is the exhaust keyword because in village pillage everyone gets the same four cards at the start those are structure you start with those cards they're in every game they have to be explained before you can do anything else that's structure and then the deck of different cards you have is content 
there is a keyword, exhaust, which only exists in the deck. It's not in any of the starting cards. And it means that you can like teach the, you can go through the rulebook, learn the game, then put the rulebook aside and never have to reference it again because you, you, deal, you interact with every part of the game within the first two rounds. Unless halfway through the game, a, a card with the exhaust comes out and then you're sort of added new information. And again, like the elegance of the game is that everything you need to know you've learned right up front without having to learn anything new. It's just different permutations of that, except for exhaust. So exhaust is a keyword and keywords generally I consider as content because you don't need to know how they exist unless they come in your particular game. You don't need to know how they operate unless in the game that you're playing right now, they come out. Yeah, I instinctively thought of them as being content because to me, a keyword is just is just a mental shortcut for players for a thing that comes up often. Like if you remove the keyword, it's just the text on there every time. It's content, right? So to me, having the keyword or having the tag or having the icon for it doesn't change it. Yes and no. Like like yes, generally speaking, you're right. Let's use Settlers Katana's example, the knight cards that come out of the deck. You play them in front of you and whoever has the most knights gets the most knights card. And the most knights card is structure, but the the knights keyword is content. It's it's this weird like I don't know. For for me, it exists in this in this weird gray space between the two. But maybe right. Maybe it's just pure content. And I'm being silly. I thought of a couple other examples, by the way, of games that are pure structure. Ah, I wondered what you're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't turn off my brain, man. Once you got me thinking about it, that's all I could think. I give you a puzzle and you got to solve it. The game. Ah, uh, yep, yep. That, that's that's really cool. Yep. The mind simile. Oh no, the the mind no the mind has content. The shuriken. The round cards, yeah, the, the cards that come out each round. Are are the round cards not part of the structure? So for me, the difference is that you could swap out those round cards and have a different experience. Uh, I guess you don't need to teach them up front. You could have a round card that said everyone has to play with their eyes closed this round. Yeah, okay. To me, it's very similar to like the TI strategy card situation where it's kind of on the edge there. There's only really two things that they do, isn't there? They tell you how many cards and, yeah, how many shuriken you get. Isn't there a, th- a third thing that they do? Or am, I, am I misremembering? Like, yeah, like you get lives back or is that the shurikens? Oh, yeah. No, you're right. Lives, shuriken, yeah. and so that. I think you're right. I would consider that structure. However, if I was designing expansion for the mind, that's the place I would go to put content because it's part of the game, but it, it, it's swap out, swap outable. In the same way as, as with the strategy cards for Twilight Imperium, they were like, hey, we can make these from structure into content, that's what I would turn from structure into content if I was developing an expansion of the mind. I have a few more examples. Yeah, please. Fugitive. Oh, oh. see, I think a Fugitive is, is having a lot of content because it comes with all the mini expansions. I think you're thinking of the wrong game. Fugitive is the card game from Tim Fowers. Tim Fowers, yeah. No, I backed that on Kickstarter because I love that pitch so much. The content is cards numbered 1 through 42. No, that's what I'm saying. So the the Kickstarter version came with a bunch of mini expansions that were like player oh. powers, stuff that unlocks after a certain number of cards have been played. Like there was a bunch of content that he, I guess, tacked on in a sense. Okay, but no, you're you're right. Like the core game of Fugitive is is pure structure. Jabberwocky. Ah, so <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't yep. say so? Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. A Lady in the Tiger as well by, by the same yeah. uh, same metric. Yeah, I think of the different games as content, <laughs> which is nonsense. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. That, that's a really good example. And all of those, I would not argue if someone called each of those an abstract game. They're not an abstract strategy game, but each of those is essentially an abstract game. And the reason why we're doing this, we, we've talked before in the past about not trying to get too fussy about definitions and about markers and things. You know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the reason why we're trying to differentiate isn't to say like, this is this is the line and you shall not cross it. And like, no, no, no. It, it's, it's about how useful it is as a model. Exactly. And it's just trying to help you 
be able to identify if you're having a trouble with your design or if you're trying to figure out how to add more content to your game, a lens to view your game through. I think that's that's what we're trying to do yeah. here. Uh, actually, your list made me think of another one, Flam Rouge, which I don't think anyone's ever described as an abstract. And that game, again, like numbers one through eight or whatever it is, is the only content in that game. Not true. The boards? Yep, because there's different tracks, and the tracks can have the special sides with like hazards. Yes, and, like... yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, but that, that, one, that, that one I'd say is one of the lowest content games. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think it's also actually worth flagging when content is is functional versus leaning into the system. So I'm going to use French Toast as an example. The content in French Toast, there's, there's two decks, so let's talk about them each separately. Um, let, let's, let's explain French Toast, and let's explain it by quickly playing around. <laughs> so the goal of French Toast is for AJ to think about the noun I'm thinking of. I'm going to compare the word he says to French Toast. Let's just go, and that'll be the fast event teacher's game. AJ, hit me. Dog. Dog. Ooh. Um, human. Dog. Fur. Dog. <laughs> so far, this game is just me <laughs> saying dog a lot. This is not, not the best... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if you don't know the game, this might be confusing, but just bear with us. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say basketball. Oh, basketball. Yeah, it was ball. So yes. Uh... <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Uh, so French Toast, you just heard, is a very simple game, very quick. And what just happened was Peter, in his mind's eye, had chosen a word. In this case, it was ball. And I was trying to guess what it was. So the first thing I guessed was, was dog. And so he compared is a ball closer to a dog than it is to French toast. Remember, the name of the game is French toast. That's what we're starting with. And so he decided that a dog was closer to a ball than French toast. He decided that a ball was closer to a dog than it was to a human. And then I guessed basketball, and that happened to be the right clue. <laughs> yeah, the way to think about it is the last guess is one end of the spectrum, the new guess is the other end, and I'm just deciding where on that spectrum, or which, which end of that spectrum, my keyword is closer to. As you can see, very hard to explain, very easy to play. So that game has two decks of content. It has the word cards and it has the hint cards. It's interesting because like the word cards are sort of the expandable content, but for me, they're, they're purely like you need them to play. They're an entirely functional part of the game. Now, we put a lot of work into choosing the right cards because it was important to me that you never play two games back to back and be like, oh, it's basically the same card again. So like we have dog, but not cat, because once you've if you play around with dog and you've shuffled the deck and drawn cat, it's going to be a very samey experience that we have, say, dog and bat as in the animal, because even though they're both animals, bats and dogs are distinct enough that i don't think you would find it repetitive to play one and then the other and then we have we have a bunch of stuff um were you at that dinner where we just sat down and came up with like a million words for this game <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh that was way before you uh, you worked we worked with jelly bean um years before you worked with jelly bean but coming up with that content was incredibly difficult and it doesn't necessarily like emphasize the game you need it to play the game because we found with people just come up with their own words they really struggled to come up with anything other than ball which i picked because it was right in front of me <laughs> but that's content and that's i guess expandable content if you run out but that's not content that it doesn't add variety yeah it, it, it the variety is necessary for the game to function it's not content that you could you know release an expansion deck where you're like whoa this content completely changes the way the game is played i guess you could release an abstract concepts or verbs expansion but that content i'm proud of i think we've done as well as we can with that content but that content has a very low ceiling of how good it can be i would just flag that there are cases where changing the content perfunctory content i would consider it yeah so like insider Insider, if you change the clues in that, that dramatically changes the game. In the base game, you could have anything from tree to civilization. And in that game, you're trying to 
similar to French toast, kind of. It's social deduction, but basically you're trying to figure out what a word is. One person knows and they're secretly trying to help you. And so everyone's trying to guess. If the word is tree, it's not going to be too hard for people to figure that out. So the insider doesn't have to work super hard on it. If it's civilization, good luck, buddy. Yeah. And so if there were expansion packs for that, where it was like, here's the expert mode or here's the playing with kids mode. Right. And, and we do do that in French toast. We have the difficulty modes. But I, I'm, I'm going to call it perfunctory content because it is content that you just need for the game to function at all. You couldn't pre-print that. So in Settlers of Catan, if the development deck in, in Settlers of Catan was just knights and uh, the victory point cards, that I would consider perfunctory content. But they went above and beyond. They were like, okay, well, what else could this be? Oh, the Monopoly card. That has a different like level of interaction. The the um, This card, the that card. Like they, They've worked on that deck until it did interesting things that emphasize the core of the game. Whereas French Toast, again, I'm very proud of the deck in French Toast. We worked hard to bring it down to single word nouns, but that deck's job is just not to get in the way. That's all it has to do. It just has to like let you play the game while getting in the way as little as possible. And it requires skill to do that. I'm not, I'm not dissing the development on that game, but it is perfunctory content versus something like the uh, the aliens in Cosmic Encounter are creative content, to, use, to just to give it a different term. Whereas the hint deck in French Toast that for me is creative content. So obviously we couldn't do that in the podcast, but at the start of French Toast, you draw a hint card or you draw six hint cards, choose one and put it on a spectrum. And there's stuff like cold, wet, hot, expensive, new, smelly, stuff like that. That deck, you could, I could reasonably see you switching out that deck for something that's like hopeful. <laughs> like you could, mm. you could really have fun with that deck. And again, in a sense, it's perfunctory, but that deck I could see you having a more creative time with and really changing the experience of the game. Whereas the the nouns deck, you you don't want to do that. If, if you change the nouns deck in French Toast to, I don't know, verbs or something like that, it just wouldn't be as much fun. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a really good point as to like that deck versus the other making such a big difference in terms of one, you could change it out and people wouldn't even notice. The other, you change it out, and it's almost a completely different game. <laughs> right. In Cosmic Encounters, that would be the aliens I would call the creative the creative content, and the action cards are the perfunctory, because they're all just like, plus one, plus two, plus three, and you get a bonus or whatever. And you could change the action card deck to make it quite different, but that's not the type of thing that you probably want to do. Exactly, exactly. You, you could do that with French Toast, but you would be getting in the way of the game. And that, that's sort of what I'm trying to say with perfunctory content. Like, perfunctory content, you need it. You need the numbers 1 through 100 in the mind. One thing I'd like to circle back to quickly is we did talk about some examples of games where the content and the structure weren't in alignment. I just want to give a quick example of one where I think it's a particularly good example of where the content and the structure are in alignment, and that's Sushi Go. I think that if you look at Sushi Go, all the cards make so much sense with what you want to be doing. It encourages you to draft a lot of the same type of card for some points, or this card over here scores if you combo with another one. All these things really reinforce the core fun of drafting. And even like the chopsticks, you take them out and then when a hand comes to you, you can put them back in and take an extra card. So you take two, but you put back your previous pick. It's basically a delayed extra draft. Right. And they could have done something where it's like, you just take the extra card and someone just gets shafted one card or something like that. <laughs> but that would obviously go against the alignment of the game. Yeah, that's a really good example of what I'm now calling creative content that is just so well done. Uh, AJ, anything else you can think of on content versus structure, but especially for like ways that designers can use these terms. And 
Honestly, I just think giving stuff a label can be useful. Um, I, th- I think as people, we, we struggle. I mean, this is sort of the central theme of 1984, which is one of my favorite books or a central theme of 1984. Once we have a term for something, we're able to discuss it in a way that we can't otherwise. So just just knowing these terms, hopefully you found useful, but I find them incredibly useful as, as, a, as a designer and as a, somebody who gives feedback. I, I'm using these terms all the time. Earlier today, I was talking with our friend Sean from Toronto. Designer of Fast Food Fight. Yeah. And we were talking about Blood Rage versus Rising Sun. And I said that I preferred Blood Rage in particular because the content was so trimmed. Because it was such a tight experience. And he liked the variety of Rising Sun. Oh, interesting. If you back the Kickstarter for Rising Sun, you will have many dozens or hundreds of plays to experience all that content. Yeah. (laughs) But for me... I'm never going to experience all the content in my Rising Sun box. I don't plan to play it hundreds of times. And so for me, it's all the extra stuff takes away from it because I will now have to be the author of my game experience. I have to decide which you know right. modules and which expansions and which gods I want in. And whereas in Blood Rage, I sit down and I know that what's in there, there's not a ton of variety. There's, there's definitely variety in there, but there's not anywhere near the amount that's in Rising Sun. But what is in there is a super polished, super crafted experience. And I, I'm not saying which way is better. And I think it depends on the product and depends on the audience. But I think it's something to keep in mind when you're designing it. Did I design too much content or not enough? One thing that I really, really would like more designers to do is if you have modules or if you have you know swapping and outable content, build a system into the game that makes that decision for the players. Yes, please. One, one of my favorite <laughs> games of all time is Brewcrafters, which is a dice hate me game from oh, almost 10 years ago now. Um, just It's a worker placement game. It, it's very well designed. I really enjoy that game. I've played the two-player version of that dozens of times. In the box, it comes with, I think, like four or five mini expansions. And on multiple occasions, I've been like, I should play the mini expansion. And I look at the rule book and it's just like, yep, here they are. That decision point, it might seem so minor. I don't want to make that decision point. I just want to play a game. I would have preferred it if there had been a little deck of cards that you shuffle and you deal out two and, and like maybe maybe half the deck is blanks and you play with whatever mini expansions come out because then I'd be like, oh yes, the game is is telling me how to play it. Uh, sort of like you said, I, I don't be like, I, I design games for a living. I don't want to design games recreationally. <laughs> um, <laughs> or when I'm, when I'm more accurately, when I'm sitting down to play a game, I don't want to be a designer. I want to be a player. And so I've to this day never played with any of the mini expansions of Brewcraft, despite loving it so much because A, the, that game has a bunch of different content within the game. That game has a lot of, of content uh, that you can swap in and out. So it, it didn't need the mini expansions. But secondly, just that little pain point of you need to choose one is sort of obnoxious enough that I don't want to engage with it. One other thing I just thought of. Yeah, actually in TI3, they famously had many, many modules. If you bought all the expansions, there were so many different ways to play and you can mix and match them. But again, it put the onus on the players to find the fun way to play. And one of the the things that they mentioned in one of their design diaries for TI4 was they wanted to play through all the different possible permutations, try everything and create an authored experience where they say, this is the best possible combination. And when they made an expansion for TI4, they didn't make it with modules, just throw everything in this box into the game and start playing. (laughs) That's great. One other thing I thought of that could be useful or at least interesting is thinking about games as structure first or content first, or or not, not first necessarily, but like focused, structure focused or content focused. 
because a game I think can have a lot of content while still being a structure focused game like Robotopia for example has a lot of content we've got these four guilds and you choose a different guild each game and there's a bunch of guilds you can choose from there's a big action deck there's starting cards which is very uh perfunctory content now that I have this term I can start using it but that is a very structure focused game and the opposite would be Gloomhaven has tons of structure, but it's definitely a content-focused yeah. game. Old Res Arcana that we mentioned earlier is, uh, I mean, I mean that, that 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 I guess that that's a bad example because that is structure light. But that is a game where you play it for the content versus playing it for the structure. Hey, so we're going to uh, move into the only part of the podcast we're allowed to have fun. If you had fun while listening to the podcast before that, uh, you're actually banned. You're not allowed to listen anymore. Please unsubscribe. No, I shouldn't. <laughs> I shouldn't tell oh, listeners to unsubscribe, should I? <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I also had fun earlier. Oh, Am I banned from the next yeah, episode? You're, you're going to unsubscribe on your on your podcast app from the uh, from the show, <laughs> uh, in which we ask a little bit of a getting to know each other question. I have a question. I'm worried that we've asked it before, so you might need to cut this and I'll start again. AJ, this one is game related, which I realize goes a little against against the goal. What is your favorite, or what is one of your favorite video games? I don't know that we have asked this before. I am going to give you my top three favorite video games amazing do it my top three favorite video games are the last of us part one then close behind it the last of us part two. Oh, I, I heard part two was very divisive <laughs> it was and i'm on the side that loved it oh. i don't want to have half our subscribers leave <laughs> by getting into it aj how did you feel about the last jedi <laughs> uh what, what i'll just say is i get why people were upset and i i don't agree with them <laughs> i i had a very different take from it the last of us part one i didn't care about the story at all really is that is that the only selling point <laughs> that's what a lot of people think i think it is the most intense video game i have ever played the combat system is so visceral that like close to mid-range things always up in your face, the brutal fights, the like hiding from people. Like in, in Last of Us, it is more profitable to avoid fighting and sneak by them than it is to fight them because you will use more bullets and more supplies in combat than out of it. So it's, it's Splinter Cell, basically. Well, it's Splinter Cell, but as soon as you get caught, instead of like, oh, alarm going off, find somewhere to hide, it's like, alarm going off, now fight to the death. <laughs> <laughs> If you mess up the stealth, now it's an action game. And it wasn't designed fully around the stealth, so you would mess up at some point, and most fights became action. W worth noting here is that I'm not actually a, a heavy video gamer. I'm much more tabletop-focused. So aside from part two is divisive, <laughs> I don't think I know anything about The Last of Us. Is it a zombie game? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, I knew that it was a zombie game. <laughs> I'll maybe talk to you about it post the show. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, and then my third favorite is just so close, I have to mention it, and that's Fallout 3. And that one, I don't think it probably holds up super well. Like The gameplay of it would be really rough now. But I've never felt a game world was so immersive and so alive. It felt like no matter what I could think of to do, the game world reacted in an amazing way. And every time I turned the corner, I'd find something new and delightful. Um, Discovery is my second core aesthetic next to Fellowship. Uh, go back and listen to our conversation on uh, redefining genres for more on that. There's so much to discover. Every time I talk to someone who's played Fallout 3, I find something crazy new you can do. Like, there are thousands of NPCs in this game. There was one time I happened to go and chat with a waitress after doing a quest where I had killed this giant ant. And I'd randomly gotten this ant pheromone stuff. I was like, Ant Pheromone, I can use it to slightly increase my charisma for like 
a few minutes, whatever. I talked to her and she was like, oh, you know that guy I always talk about who I'm in love with? I think I could maybe get him to to like me more if I had like nice perfume or something. Hey, what about that pheromone? I gave it to her. She seduced him. She invited me to their in-game wedding and I went there and I watched the wedding. That's one random item from one corner of the world talking to one of thousands of NPCs. And that type of thing happens all the time. That's fun. That's not even like to say about the freedom you have in the game. I'm going to tell another quick anecdote, if I may. Yeah, please. Uh, I'll, I'll be quick. In the first town after you basically finish the tutorial, it's like post-apocalyptic, right? So you come out of this underground bunker of like many years after a nuclear apocalypse. And there's a giant unexploded nuke in the middle of this city. And so this guy calls you over and he's like, hey, you want to blow that thing up for like a lot of money? <laughs> and so I said, yeah, sure. Thank you for the money. Ran to the police officer and was like, yo, this guy wants me to blow up the town. <laughs> the police officer runs over and he's like, all right, come with me. And then the shady guy murders him. And <laughs> and then like the sheriff's kid takes over the town as like a lawman at like age eight. It's crazy. <laughs> it's an inherited position. Yeah. <laughs> Structure versus content, by the way, I feel like could be an incredibly useful topic for video game as well. I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, because all, all the stuff you're talking about is con- like video games tend to be very simple structure and then very deep and complex content. But the lines I would say are even more blurred in a video game because there's no there's no rules teacher rule book. I mean, nowadays there's no rule book. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what are your favorites? The reason I ask this question is because my favorite of 18 years has been dethroned. And my previous <laughs> favorite was Morrowind, The Elder Scrolls 3 Morrowind, which I would describe mm-hmm. almost exactly as described Fallout 3 in that like, it is not a modern day play. Like you do not want to play it today, but oh, the depth of it and the amount of stuff that's going on and like the combat's janky, but it's... You know, Fallout 3 is made by the same company using the same engine. Oh, I didn't know it was the same engine. I wondered if it was the same content. I probably would have liked Fallout 3. The thing I love about Morrowind is the world building. Mm. World building is my number one thing in, in fictional media. I love it. I love it. I love it. To the point where bad or poorly thought out world building can completely ruin a piece of media for me. Um, the two examples I give are Ratatouille, which is by all accounts a great movie, except the world building, but no one cares about the world building but me. And I, I can't enjoy that film because the world building is so shoddy and so not even poorly thought out, but like deliberately they're like, yeah, we don't care about world building. We're just going to do this because it makes the plot better. I'm like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't stand that film. <laughs> and um, Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale, the book, deliberately does not dive into the world building because she didn't, you know, she, that wasn't the point of the story. The show is like, let's dive into this world. And it just doesn't make any sense on any level. It's like, it doesn't understand how world building works. The Morrowind world building is flawless i love it it's it's the most interesting world building i've ever played in a video game and i love it to bits so 18 year champion dethroned since we last recorded by baba is you so good it's incredible i've i've realized the the more i design especially the more i design with different people the more i've realized that my thing in games not this this is why we don't talk about uh games during the fun part because i just want to tie it all back to (laughs) to board game (laughs) design my thing in games is puzzles i love puzzles i love the puzzles of designing games the reason this podcast is called fun problems is because designing a game is solving a fun problem playing a board game is solving a fun problem baba is you is the perfect puzzle game it's just 
absolutely flawless. The central hook, the main thing about it is that the words Bubba is you appear on screen. So you have this little rabbit sheep thing called Bubba and flag is win. Again, they appear as text on screen and so there's a flag. If you go into the flag, you win. Rock is push. You can push a rock out of the way so you can get to the flag. All of these words on the screen are interactable objects. So you can push flag into Bubba is you and become flag is you. And now you're the flag and you can push Bubba into Bubba into flag is win and become flag is you, Bubba is win. And now you are the flag trying to get to Bubba. It's got like 200 levels. I'm on like level 180 since we last recorded. So you can tell how much this game has grabbed me because it is not easy. <laughs> I have played <laughs> many hours and I've only looked up the solutions for two levels out of that full 200. The rest I've, I've solved completely by myself, which I'm very proud of. It gets deeper and deeper and more complex and i love when you get a really good core system and you come up with new ways to subvert it this game never stops doing that i'm on level 200 and they're still like hey by the way here's a different thing that has not been in the game from the start but like this is using an element that's been in the game from the start in a way that you never would have considered incredible i love 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 this game i highly recommend it if you like puzzle games if you don't like puzzle games oh, yeah. you're gonna hate it because it's pure puzzle it does have both lateral and linear thinking and as we mentioned before i think i'm not interested in linear thinking so the early parts especially are all lateral and then it becomes heavier and heavier in the linear oh i, I don't know if i'd agree with that but i, I can see where you're coming from Really? Every time I got stuck on a puzzle and didn't want to keep playing, it was because it was a linear puzzle. The early puzzles, like especially the first like 20 or so, have tons of lateral thinking. I, I think they also have tons of lateral uh, of linear thinking, though. They, they do, but like the later ones, I think, remove the lateral because you've already figured out how to use the things. Uh, see, the I, I, I get stuck later on by the very lateral thinking. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, one, one other thing I'll say about it that I really appreciate and that I don't think I've ever seen another puzzle game do to the degree this does. I have very poor object permanence, which sounds like a weird thing for a fully grown adult to say. If something's not in front of me, I dare not to think about it. A lot of puzzle games like Abe's Odyssey and Abe's Exodus and even The Witness, they have puzzles taking place over multiple screens. Every level of Barbara is you with like very specific weird exceptions, maybe twice in the game. Everything you can do, you can see. So there, there's no case of like, ah, oh, I should have gone to the other level and, and like, I should have gone to the other screen and looked at that. No, if it's, if, if it's a puzzle you can solve, like if you need it to solve the puzzle, it's there. It gives you everything you need in one screen unless you solve the puzzles. And I just really appreciated that. That game has absolutely blown me away. Uh, my, my other runner up is Limbo, by the way, which is another puzzle game with really interesting world building. And, and then inside the sequel. I was about to say, <laughs> you got to mention inside what you're going to say. Yeah, I, I, I see them as the same game in the same way as like Abe's Odyssey and Abe's <laughs> Exodus are technically two different games. And technically I like the first one a little more, but really it's just it's just the same thing, but more so. It's a content yeah. expansion, not a structure expansion. It's <laughs> 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 a complete blow my own horn moment, but I listened to a podcast today, which was a full 45 minutes just talking about my upcoming abstract game from Pandasaurus, That Time You Killed Me and they loved it like they, they called it their game of the year slash possibly their game of the decade wow yeah no they, they, that's they awesome man. really like this game um friday night games if if you uh if, if you're into podcasts and you want to listen to people just complimenting me for a full 45 minutes which i was very into <laughs> uh, <laughs> and well earned by the way this is a phenomenal game thank you I'm, I'm very proud of that one they did a really good job with the dev and production on that too it was good and then they made it way better i'm really proud of that in this podcast they're talking about how every time they felt like okay this is all you can do with the system they would open up a new box and they would find more that's how i felt about baba is you like baba is you i aspire to someday make a game half as good as baba is you because every new level or every new world unlocked a thing where i was like 
oh, this is so clever and ties in so well to the core systems and adds such an interesting new element just again and again and again and again. If that appeals to you, check out That Time You Killed Me because uh, this podcast said that I do that. <laughs> AJ, what are we talking about next time? Give us a little sneak preview. Next time, we're doing an episode that I teased in the very first one. We're going to finally talk about the bedrock of fun, biochemistry. <laughs> now, this is a topic that I know nothing about, so I'm very keen to, uh, to learn about this. As I will rant about in that episode, everyone uses all the words wrong. Dopamine <laughs> isn't the only chemical in your brain. <laughs> they're technically not brains, they're feet, it's a whole thing. <laughs> the medical community's been lying to us. Uh, <laughs> I'm very excited for that. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And uh, I've been Peter C. Hayward. I, I've been AJ Brandon and will continue to be. We, we don't know that for sure. We don't know. We haven't listened to the brain chemistry yet. We don't know how it's going to work. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.